0: hey everybody welcome i'm so glad you're joining me in the final lesson in this series about three simple steps to studying the bible we have taken a journey from acts 3 to Acts 7 and we're looking at the start of the new church and so the apostles have been sent out to preach the good news of the gospel and we've been learning about all the things that they've encountered in the circumstances that they have endured. And so today we get to the dramatic conclusion of this portion of our study. And it's all about a genealogy because Stephen who is has been uh, on trial uh, for preaching the gospel and for what they would say was denying that Moses was the head leader and of the uh, Jewish faith and for saying that the temple is now a temple where Jesus resides. You know, they're, They are putting him on trial and he is defending his faith. And we're going to see a sermon that he preaches that's really a history lesson. He goes back into their genealogy. And so we're going to take a look at that. So it reminded me of a time a few years ago when my husband and I were in Salt Lake City and we visited the Family History Library. Uh, it's a genealogical research facility that's run by the Mormons. And it was so fun to put the names of my family members in and to then look at my history and the the people that had been a part of our my tree. And so I still get periodic updates about my family. And most recently I got an email and it was headed this way. you grandmother lived in challenging times. Learning about the challenges she faced can offer strength and encouragement in your own difficult times. Well, I was intrigued, and I dug into that email to see what I could learn. And there was a timeline of every major world event during her lifetime, (coughs) which was 1904 to 1998. Wow. Did she experience a lot of circumstances during that century of living? Willa? Louise Simmons Gross was my grandmother, and she handled those circumstances with what I would call wit and wisdom. I learned so much from her and her uh, beautiful soul and spirit, and she was one of my favorite people. I'm so glad that in my genealogy, I have a wonderful, positive role model and so i have somebody that i can look back on to see how she chose well well you know not everybody has a grandma gross in their genealogy and these religious leaders that stephen was speaking to and addressing didn't go back into their lineage to look at what God was really doing through his people. And so Stephen is going to school them on that. So uh, we learned in our last lesson that Stephen was charged with speaking against Moses, against God, against the temple, and against the laws and the customs that were handed down by Moses. So this is Acts 7. It is his sermon. It's the longest sermon in the book of Acts, and he is going to preach to his accusers. And the sermon is a history lesson and a genealogy lesson for these religious leaders. So we think our author, Luke, wanted his largely Gentile audience, that means the non-Jews, to get a brief history on how God was dealing with the people of Israel. He was reminding them of the behaviors of the generations who've gone before them. And it was a warning signal that he is giving. So it also shows this view of Israel as an having an ongoing stubborn rejection of God's message and his messengers. It shows also that God was working in many places and in many ways through his servants down through the centuries. And one thing that that we're going to see in the sermon is that God was not limited to only being in a temple. God was all over the land of Palestine and the temple and all over the whole known uh, world. And so God was everywhere. And like Abraham, who obediently followed the Lord what we're hearing in the sermon is going to be that God's people must continue to listen to the Lord and go where he leads. Well, the overall message here is that Stephen is faced with false charges and this sermon is going to Show. not He's not really going to defend himself in this, but he is going to show the nature of Israel's rebellion against God. And then we're going to have this climactic ending where about the very charges that were brought against him were actually not true. However, they are going to find him guilty of rejecting God and Moses and even worse. Uh, and so we're going to see how Stephen handles that. So let's dig in and begin with Acts 7, verses 1 through 8. God is calling a people, and we're going to look at how he uses Abraham. Then the chief priest said, what do you have to say for yourself? Well, the chief priest was probably Caiaphas. He was the same man who just weeks early or condemned Jesus. Stephen replied, friends, fathers. And brothers. Notice how he's trying to bring them all in together and in a very positive, uh, unifying way. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was still in Mesopotamia before the move to Haran and told him, Leave your country and family and go to the land I'll show you. So he left the country of the Chaldees and moved to Haran. After the death of his father, he emigrated to this country where you now live, but God gave him nothing, not so much as a foothold. He did promise to give the country to him and later to his son, even though Abraham had no son at the time. God let him know that his offspring would move to an alien country where they would be enslaved and brutalized for 400 years. But God said, I will step in and take care of those slaveholders and bring my people out so they can worship me in this place. Then he made a covenant with him and signed it in Abraham's flesh by circumcision. When Abraham said, had his son Isaac, within eight days he reproduced the sign of circumcision in him. <clears throat> uh, Isaac became father of Jacob, and Jacob, father of the twelve fathers each faithfully passing on the covenant sign. So he begins with the story of Abraham. And he's doing this Bible lesson to what was known as the world's greatest Bible scholars at the time. And he's telling them, I don't think you really understand the faith, the faith that God called Abraham to and the one he calls us to today God says, Abraham, you're going to have to be willing to leave your father and leave your land and everything that you've known. And this is what God asks of his people today. And what he was asking at the time that Stephen was speaking, if you're willing to call yourself my disciple, you must be willing to leave your family and your friends and do whatever is necessary to follow me. So he's reminding them that God calls he started calling Abraham he is calling them and he's calling us and then he he goes on to say in the next verses uh, we're going to read verses nine through twelve you don't stand alone. Uh, whenever you're feeling over your head and isolated because God is big enough that he can protect you in the middle of your circumstances. And he's going to prove that with a story about Joseph. So let's look at that beginning with verse nine. But then those fathers burning up with jealousy sent Joseph off to Egypt as a slave. God was right there with him though. He not only rescued him from all his troubles, but brought him to the attention of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He was so impressed with Joseph that he put him in charge of the whole country, including his own personal affairs. Later, a famine descended on that entire region, stretching from Egypt to Canaan, bringing terrific hardship. Our hungry fathers looked high and low for food, but the cupboard was bare. Jacob heard there was food in Egypt and sent the fathers to get, uh, to get food. Well, having confirmed the report, they went to Egypt a second time. And on that visit, Joseph revealed his true identity to his brothers and introduced the Jacob family to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent for his father, Jacob, and everyone else in the family, 75 in all. That's how the Jacob family got to Egypt. And then Jacob died and our fathers after him. See, see how he is tracing the lineage, the genealogy and telling of the hardships and and how God was with them. And so he says they were taken and buried in a tomb that Adam, Abraham had purchased. And so it, Stephen is reminding them, everybody that Joseph had all of these relatives, his, his family, and that the brothers became really jealous and they came to hate Joseph. And so he's reminding them of all the the experiences that Joseph had, but he's saying God was with him all the way, and don't forget that he's telling these religious leaders. And and I think he's probably also reminding himself, God is still with me too, even though I am being singled out and I am being uh, isolated and they are pounding me with questions and horrible stares. And he, he said, God is with me. Joseph wasn't alone, I'm not alone and you're not alone. And God was protecting him just as he has protected people through the ages. Even when Stephen had been in that jail and when Joseph had been in the jail, God was with him. It's a reminder that God is with us in our circumstances. He's big enough to protect us from all the troubles that we are experiencing. See, Stephen's sermon is universal. It transcends time. It's the wonderful reminder of all that God has done for us. I just think it's wonderful that he is reminding these religious leaders, these scholars of these basic principles of God and his mercy and his love and his protection. Well, next, we're moving to the story of Moses, and he's going to show how God protected Moses and rescued his people. So let's look at verse 17. When the 400 years were nearly up, the time God had promised Abraham for deliverance, the population of our people in Egypt had become very large, and there was now a king over Egypt who had never heard of Joseph. He exploited our race mercilessly. He went so far as forcing us to abandon our newborn infants, exposing them to the elements to die a cruel death. In just such a time Moses was born, a most beautiful baby, he was hidden at home for three months, When he could no longer be hidden, he was put outside and immediately rescued by Pharaoh's daughter, who mothered him as her own son. Moses was educated in the best schools in Egypt. He was equally impressive as a thinker and an athlete. And when he was 40 years old, he wondered how everything was going with his Hebrew kin and went to look things over. He saw an Egyptian abusing one of them and stepped in, avenging his underdog brother by knocking the Egyptian flat. He thought his brothers would be glad that he was on their side and even see him as an instrument of God to deliver them, but they did not see it that way. The next day, two of them were fighting, and he tried to break it up, told them to shake hands and get along with each other. Friends, you are brothers. Why are you beating each other up? Well, the one who had started the fight said, who put you in charge of us? Are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard that, realizing that the word was out, he ran for his life and lived in exile over in Midian. During the years of exile, two sons were born to him. Forty years later, in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, an angel appeared to him in the guise of flames in a burning bush. Moses, not believing his eyes, went up to take a closer look. He heard God's voice, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Frightened nearly out of his skin, Moses shut his eyes and turned away. God said, kneel and pray. You are in a holy place "...on holy ground. I've seen the agony of my people in Egypt. I've heard their groans. I've come to help them. So get yourself ready. I'm sending you back to Egypt." This is the same Moses whom they earlier rejected, saying, "...who put you in charge of us?" This is the Moses that God, using the angel flaming in the burning bush, sent back as a ruler and redeemer. He led them out of slavery. He did wonderful things, setting up God signs all throughout Egypt, down at the Red Sea and out in the wilderness for 40 years. So he's given this beautiful story of Moses and he's showing the humanity of Moses and that he was uh, often, he made mistakes and he was a failed human being. And And while he is held up to high standards and he was a wonderful prophet and a, a faithful leader, he had his flaws and he's reminding these religious leaders of that Uh, You know, and what we see in this story also is that sometimes God doesn't rescue us from trouble. Sometimes he rescues us through our trouble. Sometimes he goes with us in the middle of that difficulty, but he is always with us. And he was big enough to rescue Moses and his people and he can rescue us through anything that we're dealing with. So many of you are dealing with Issues at home with loved ones who are sick or who have some mental challenges, or family members who aren't getting along, or or you're dealing with financial issues—just a whole host of them. And this reminder is that God is helping us through those circumstances, even though they may not go away, they may not disappear. He is with us. And so, what Stephen has done is he's talked about Joseph in prison and his family. Is uh, living really large. And pretty soon, Joseph knows his family is in trouble, but God is protecting them. He's providing for them. And so he tells his, his accusers You're accusing me of undermining or speaking against Moses. But let me tell you the story, real story of Moses. And so I love that this is uh, the way he's telling it. He is reminding them of the details of the life of Moses. And he's he's saying Moses was a wonderful leader. He was a great leader. Perhaps the greatest leader that ever lived apart from Jesus Christ himself. In fact, Moses showed up in the in the scenes um where he was not the rescuer I and mean, he murdered someone and so joseph is giving uh steven's giving this reminder um, he, he is saying God has a plan to rescue his people. We have to trust him and follow his plan and be open to the changes that he's making. And the religious leaders weren't willing to do that. For 400 years, God was putting the steps in place to rescue his people, and they were never alone even though they were very disobedient. We're going to see that when we're looking at the life of Moses, beginning with verse 37, Uh, continuing with Moses. This is the Moses who said to his congregation, listen to these words. Moses said, God will raise up a prophet just like me from your descendants. Now, Stephen's speaking about Jesus there. This is the Moses who stood between the angels speaking at Sinai and your fathers assembled in the wilderness and took the life-giving words given to him and handed them over to us, words our fathers would have nothing to do with. They craved the old Egyptian ways, whining to Aaron. Now, listen to that message he's saying. Those Israelites wanted life before Moses was receiving the tablets. Before Moses was receiving the commandments, they wanted to go back to life in egypt because they were stubborn they were stiff-necked they weren't bendable they weren't willing to change and listen and this is the reminder that stephen is giving to these of uh, uh, these uh, religious leaders so now we're in uh, verse 40 make us gods is what they were saying that we can see and follow this moses who got us out here miles from nowhere who knows what's happened to him This was the time when they made a calf idol, brought sacrifices to it, and congratulated each other on the wonderful religious program that they had put together. Well, God wasn't at all pleased, but he let them do it their way. Worship every new God that came down the pike and live with the consequences. Consequences that were described by the prophet Amos. And here's what Amos said. Did you bring me offerings of animals and grains, those 40 wilderness years, O Israel? Hardly. You were too busy building shrines to God wars, to sex goddesses, worshiping them with all your might. That's why I put you in exile in Babylon. See the reminder that he's giving the religious leaders about what happens when people are stubborn and go against the plan that God has put into place. And he refers to the golden calf incident. Remember that, where the Israelites were tired of waiting on Moses to receive the word, so they built their own idol to worship. His point is that the Israelites continued to reject Moses and God and turn toward idolatry because they were stubborn. They rejected Moses, the one the religious leaders were holding up as higher than Jesus. Well, the religious leaders there didn't want to be reminded of that. I imagine this was an important moment in the sermon. Uh, Those religious leaders must have been gritting their teeth. Their blood pressure must have skyrocketed. And I think they were about to flip their lid. Well, notice how through all these circumstances, Stephen is reminding the leaders that God was faithful. He gave them many chances. He was merciful. But this incident was different. When they began to build their own idol and not wait for God to give his commandments, God was not pleased, and he left them to their own devices. He said they could live with the consequences of their choices. Now, that's a message he is sending to those leaders, and he's sending it to us God is faithful to us and merciful to us, but there will be a time in our lives where he says you are going to just continue to make bad choices, then I'm leaving leaving you to live with the consequences of those. Well, Stephen answers the last charge next. They accuse him of undermining the temple. So here's how he answers this. We're in verse 44. And all this time, our ancestors had a tent shrine for true worship made to the exact specifications God provided Moses. They had it with them as well when they followed Joshua, when God cleared the land of pagans and still had it right down to the time of David. David asked God for a permanent place of worship, but Moses, but Solomon built it. Yeah, that doesn't mean that the Most High God lives in a building made by carpenters and masons. The prophet Isaiah put it well when he wrote, and then he says the words of Isaiah, Heaven is my throne room. I rest my feet on earth. So what kind of house will you build for me, says God? Where can I get away and relax? It's already built, and I built it. These leaders had accused Stephen of undermining the temple. And he says now that God is not living inside a holy place in the temple. God now lives within us. He's saying that we're not alone because God is within us through his Holy Spirit. Once we give our hearts and lives to him and commit ourselves to him, then we are now have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit well, he uses that word temple or tabernacle. And so what he is saying is that that, that tabernacle was very important I didn't get in that. the wilderness. Could you try again? In the wilderness, it was so important. They traveled with it. They, it, it followed them everywhere they went and that was important to them. And then they built their own temple and God resided in the Holy of Holies there. But once Jesus died on the cross, that, that, uh, that curtain was rent in two, was torn in two, and the, and the Holy Spirit now spreads and lives in each of us individually. And so he says, you're accusing me of speaking against this temple, but I'm going to remind you of something. God does not dwell in a specific place on earth anymore. God is within us. You know, that's not how God meets his people anymore, he's telling them, because the Holy Spirit of the living God moves and takes up residence inside us. In fact, later on in the New Testament, it it said this way, your body becomes a dwelling place or a temple of the Lord if you know Jesus Christ personally. Here's how it reads in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. This is what Paul says. Do you know your body is a temple? It's a temple of the Holy Spirit and whom you received when you believed in God. So he is trying to tell them that life has changed because Jesus is the Messiah and he came to earth, lived as a man, died on a cross, was buried and resurrected and life as you knew it changed. And he is encouraging them to get on board with the change. Wow. Wow. Well, he's answering the charge against them, but are they going to listen? Uh, Verse 51, and you continue so bullheaded, calluses on your hearts, flaps on your ears, deliberately ignoring the Holy Spirit. You're just like your ancestors. Was there ever a prophet who didn't get the same treatment? Your ancestors killed anyone who dared talk about the coming of the just one. And you've kept up the family tradition, traitors and murderers, all of you. You had God's law handed to you by angels, gift-wrapped, and you squandered it. Wow, look at all those names he's called them. He has reached a fevered pitch in this sermon. I wanted you to read how the NIV says this. You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You resist the Holy Spirit. See, that term stiff-necked was originally used to describe an ox that refused to be directed by the farmer's ox goad. And when a farmer harnessed a team of oxen to a plow, he directed them by poking them lightly with a sharp spike on the heels or the neck to make them pick up their speed and turn. An ox that refused to be directed in in such a way as the farmer was trying to get the ox to go was called stiff-necked. Well, a stiff-necked animal or a person refuses to turn the head in order to take a different path. To be stiff-necked means to be obstinate and difficult to lead. This theme runs throughout the Bible when Hebrews 4 verses 1 and 2 says that the Israelites failed in the wilderness because the word which they heard was not mixed with faith. Oh, let's sit on that for just a minute. What we read here is that God, when God's word, what we read, the knowledge we gain, the intelligence we get from reading God's word is, is not mixed with our faith, then that's a failure. That's what happened to the Israelites. They simply would not yield their mind to faith and they would never admit they were wrong. You know, here is the truth of our human nature. We almost immediately resist anything different from what we believe at the time. Now, this can be a good or a bad thing. The important thing is whether we honestly consider and evaluate ideas before rejecting them. The Israelites didn't do that, and neither did these religious leaders. We don't want to be stiff-necked people and refuse to act on the principles in God's Word Well, let's see how the leaders responded. At that point, they went wild. A rioting mob of catcalls and whistles and invective. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, hardly noticed. He only had eyes for God, whom he saw in all his glory with Jesus standing at his side. He said, Oh, I see heaven wide open and the Son of Man standing at God's side. (coughs) You see, Stephen saw the glory of God and Jesus, the Messiah, standing on God's right side. This vision echoes what Jesus said before this same high council weeks before Here's what he said, found in Matthew 26, verse 64, You have said it, and in the future you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming in the clouds of heaven. Well, this may have been the last straw for the Jewish leaders who had condemned Jesus to death for blasphemy for these very words. So they chose to silence Stephen. Verse 57 says, yelling and hissing, the mob drowned him out. Now in full stampede, they dragged him out of town and pelted him with rocks. The ringleaders took off their coats and asked a young man named Saul to watch them. You see, the leaders were furious. The penalty for blasphemy or speaking irreverently about God was death by stoning. But Rome prohibited executions without the governor's permission. So they dragged him out of the city and stoned Stephen without a trial. You see, they did not want to hear the truth. They wanted to show that their way was the right way. And so let's see how Stephen responds in these circumstances. He As he is dying, he spoke words that were very similar to words that Jesus spoke on the cross. As the rocks rained down, Stephen prayed, Master, Jesus, take my life. Then he knelt down, praying loud enough for everyone to hear, Master, don't blame them for this sin. His last words, then he died. Saul was right there congratulating the killers. Jesus had promised his followers that living for him would lead to trouble in their lives. Many believers in the early church were persecuted and sometimes they were killed. Stephen is the first martyr for his faith. Stephen was a powerful witness. He was falsely accused and arrested. And after he had witnessed at great length to the angry religious leaders, they rejected his words and stoned him. But he didn't lash out at them. In an act of mercy, grace, and forgiveness, he prayed for them. Oh, how can we learn to control our own natural tendency to lash out when people hurt us? We know our responsibility as Christians is to forgive But can we easily be overwhelmed by feelings of hurt and anger? Oh, yes. Both Stephen and Jesus faced mobs who were filled with hate and plans to kill them. Scripture tells us Stephen was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Stephen was consumed with doing God's will. And God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, responded to this terrifying omen in the way that would glorify God. Stephen trusted the Holy Spirit to empower him because he was full of God's grace and power, and he had performed great wonders and signs among the people. When the people began to stone him, his prayer was a prayer of forgiveness. Similarly, Jesus, who is the Son of the Most High God and full of the power of the Holy Spirit, was on the cross facing also an angry mob who wanted him dead. And with love and grace and mercy, Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Notice what we see in both examples. Spirit-filled men are dying at the hands of a hate-filled angry mob. Both Stephen and Jesus forgive. Let's return to that earlier question. How can we control our own natural tendencies to lash out against those who hurt us? We need to fight against that natural tendency and use God's supernatural power to forgive If Stephen and Jesus can forgive in those circumstances, so can we. Well, how does Stephen's martyrdom relate to our lives? Joseph Aldrich in his book, Lifestyle Evangelism wrote, when the non-Christian observes a believer responding to pressure and pain with a spirit controlled response, he is seeing God at work in human experience. See, we're always a testimony in how we respond to our circumstances. Stephen's response to stoning caught the attention of a man named Saul. Saul never forgot what he saw. Later, Saul became a zealous follower of Stephen's Lord. He became Paul. I imagine Paul replayed this scene of rocks hitting Stephen and blood flowing down all over him repeatedly. What kind of man would stand up and pray for the forgiveness of the very people that are murdering him? Well, it's one who would live according to the power of God working through him. In our tempted and tested times, when we're inclined to go through to our human nature and to turn on people, we need to turn toward God, just as Stephen did. In our times of hurt and heartache, we need to call on the power of the Holy Spirit within us and reflect God's mercy and grace and love and forgiveness. The truth is we're going to face difficulties So instead of praying for fewer difficulties so that we might be a better witness, let's pray that we might witness better through our difficulties. Who knows? Another Saul may be watching. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the powerful testimony of Stephen. We sit in awe of his amazing ability to stand fervently for you in the face of terrifying horrors. We thank you that he gives an example for us to follow. Help us in the coming days and weeks or minutes and hours when we are tested and we are hurt. Help us, Father, to be faithful to you and to do as you please and extend your love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. It is in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen. God bless. Thanks so much.